sometimes you need to dig into the meat and potatoes a little bit. And so if that's all right with you, we're going to sit down and we're going to just dig into the meat and potatoes a little bit of God's Word as we continue our series in Colossians. If you're new with us, we're, we're doing a series through Colossians, the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, that's in the New Testament. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, we would love to get you a Bible. We're all about giving people Bibles because we believe the Word of God is powerful. We believe when you dig into the Word of God, the Spirit of truth is going to change you. He's going to do something deep in you. And we truly believe that. So we'd love to get you a Bible. Um, you can go to myevangel.church forward slash Bible on your phone. And there's some great Bible apps you can download straight to your phone. On that same page, if you don't want to talk to anybody, you can fill out a form on that page. myevangel.church forward slash Bible. Fill out the form and we would love to get you a hard copy of your very own Bible from us for free. We'd love to get that into your hands. But what a beautiful picture this morning. What a beautiful thing to witness. Because it's not about the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism are symbolic of a deeper truth. The waters of baptism symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection that is found in Jesus. Those that went through the water of baptism today it didn't do anything for them necessarily other than position themselves saying, I'm going to make a public declaration in front of all of you, in front of community, that Jesus has changed my life. That I have died and I am now made new in Christ Jesus. And that's what the waters of baptism symbolize I want to tell you a story about my baptism. I was baptized in Dauphin, Manitoba, in a little tiny pool. I actually, this week, went on the line. And back in those days, it was called the Red River Inn. It was the only pool in town. And so we go to the Red River Inn. Um, I think it's called something else now. It's changed ownership groups over, I mean, that was a long time ago. It was back when I was a kid. And that's why I love seeing Izzy getting baptized today. Because don't underestimate, hey, don't ever underestimate the power of a child's decision to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Don't you dare ever underestimate that decision in a child because their faith, the simplicity of their faith is greater than ours. Jesus tells us that. Jesus tells us that we need to become more like them in the simplicity of our faith. And so I was just a kid and it was, it was in the same pool, Red River Inn, years before that, that I had actually almost drowned. I don't know why we were there. I don't remember why we were there. I do distinctly remember this moment. I was always a tall kid. I was always tall for my age, so people overestimated my age. And I wasn't there with my parents, and so people always overestimated how old I was. And so I ended up as a young kid in the deep end of the pool. Somehow, you know, the gradual slide off and all of a sudden I'm, and I am above my head and I am drowning. Legit, I am drowning. I am scared out of my mind. I don't remember much from childhood. I don't know if anybody, some of you guys are like, I remember every single day my whole life. I don't remember much, but I remember that moment. I distinctly remember that moment. And I remember being under the water, and I was running out of oxygen, and I was about to take that big gulp. 
And I had my wrist above the water, and one of our board members, is one of my, my buddy's dads, actually reached out while I was under, and grabbed my wrist, and he pulled me up. Well, it was a few years later that as a kid still, I was baptized in that pool. And I thought, you know, looking back, how appropriate. How appropriate that I would be baptized in the exact same place where I almost literally physically died. Because baptism speaks to the dying as much as it speaks to the resurrecting of one's life in Jesus. We're baptized under death and burial, and we're brought up in the resurrecting power of Jesus. It's a symbol of what Jesus did in us. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 17. He says, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. These baptisms that we witness and celebrate today, they're the perfect segue into our text found in Colossians 3, 5 to 11. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there with us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. At Evangel Church, uh, we don't put Scripture up on the screen. We'll give you the references. Uh, but we believe there's something powerful about having your Bible with you. There's something about taking notes, marking it up, highlighting, underlining, being involved in the process because we're not here to spectate the preaching of God's Word. We're here to be participants in the preaching of God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians 3, chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Write this down. You must die so you can live. You must die so you can live. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11. Lord, we just ask that you would do something profound in us today. Lord, that you would change something deep within us. That you would revolutionize our patterns of thinking today. That, Lord, for some in this room exploring faith in Jesus, that you would reveal who God is and who they are. That you would reveal the need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Cause us to be participants in the preaching of your word and not just spectators. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You must die so you can live. Notice verse 5 of chapter 3. He starts by saying, Put to death, therefore. Put to death, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, it means that there's been a build-up to this moment. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, it means you need to go back. Because there's always been a buildup. Therefore, because of what I have just said, and, and last week Lisa preached from the verses just before this. And she talked about how Christ, we, we were raised with Christ, just as we watched in the waters of baptism, just symbolically explaining this. 
We're raised with Christ, so seek the things above, not the things below. Verse 3, it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's this reality at play in every human being that says yes to Jesus, says yes to the simplicity and the power of the gospel message. They've entered into this new life. They've died and they've entered into new life. You've been raised up in Jesus. This is important today more than ever because we live in a culture of this radical individualism. And yet the dynamic of the kingdom of God is a severe dependence. I don't know if you notice this, but our, our culture and our society in the West has become so radically individualized. And yet the value of the kingdom, the value of coming into alignment with the heart of the one who created us, is this severe dependence on the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. The goal is not is not individualism at all. The journey of looking less and less, it's about a journey looking less and less like, like you. Less and less like you. And more and more like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. The price was the death of Jesus. The, the, the price was the shed blood of Jesus. You were bought at a price. You were not your own. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your actions. So this kind of sets the tone for where we're going to go. You must die so you can live. So let's dig in. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Idolatry is putting another God in front of your worship of the one true God. And that can be anything. That can look like anything. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, because we all know lying is the easy way, isn't it? To live a life where you're not lying to one another in community, that's hard. Seeing that you have put off the old self, you've put off the old self with its practices. Paul's attention is not to create a comprehensive list of things to do and don't do. You notice Paul, he could have just made this huge list of a comprehensive list of all the things you're not allowed to do and shouldn't do. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul reveals deeper things. He reveals deeper sources of what's going on and what's bringing us to this place where we act out in these ways that don't glorify God. It's about recognizing that we have been fundamentally made new in Jesus and the nature of our broken humanity, the nature of our old person, has lost its power, has completely lost its power. This journey is about discovering that we must die so we may live. So how does this play out practically? Well, first it plays out in community. 
This is why I spoke to this increasingly individualistic society in which we live. The kingdom mentality says we need to press into Jesus, the work of the Spirit, and Christian community. This is how it plays out practically in our lives. You know, that's why Scripture says, Paul says, hey, listen, don't get in the habit of not gathering together as community of faith, as some are in the habit of doing. Like, gather, be in community together with like-minded people alive in Jesus because there's something profound happening in that environment. Dependence is the value of the kingdom, not independence. Dependence Depending on Jesus, depending on the Spirit, and depending on the person sitting next to you. And that means the person sitting next to you is depending on you. That means there's a responsibility we all share collectively in this community of faith. This is radically different from the world's model. The second is we need to deal in roots and not what we see above the surface in behavior. So often we just look at what we see on the surface. We look at behavior and we judge critically, don't we? We really do. We judge critically when we see behavior, when we see people sinning different than we do. N.T. Wright, he writes this in regards to verse 5, and I have it up on the screen. To put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of a temptation when the earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. Every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating them personally and to cut them off without pity. Better that than have them eventually destroy them. It's not about the symptoms of sin. It's about the roots of sin. It's about the lifelines of sin. The best way to illustrate this that I, that I found is, is understanding uh, something around addiction recovery. The most successful programs around addiction recovery are actually those programs that remove individuals from what they call the red zone or the hot zone. These are the environments, the communities, the places, the relationships, the friendships that they have and removing them literally physically away from that into a place where they can bring healing, leaving, being separated, being set apart from what they call the red zone or the hot zone. And then it's the practical things of discovering the lifelines, the lifelines to addiction. So much of addiction recovery, though addiction actually fuels the roots and the wounds, so much of addiction recovery has very little to do with the substance and has everything to do with the deep healing of the woundedness of the heart, the woundedness of the mind, the woundedness of our past and relationships. 
We have this preconceived idea that it's about the symptoms. It's not. The symptoms are self-medicating the deeper things. For all intents and purposes, we are all breaking an addiction in our lives. We are all breaking and walking in freedom out of the addiction that we have to our old patterns of thought, our old ways of living, our old ways of reacting to the situations that present themselves. We are all breaking an addiction to the old man, to the old woman that we once were before Jesus. But the reality is you've been made new. So we need to cut off the lifelines of that addiction to the old ways of living and thinking. And so we need all of us to take that journey of taking an inventory. What are the lifelines of the very things that I still struggle with symptomatically in the areas of sin? we got to go deeper than just the symptoms. For some of us, depending on our season of discipleship, it might mean removing ourselves from the red zone. You're particularly those new to faith. And here's, here's why I say a season. A season of removing yourself from the red zone. What I mean by that is some of us, we are in environments and we're in relationships and we're in contexts that are bringing us down and fueling the lifelines of our old self. Listen, you need to remove yourself, just like the addict needs to remove themselves from the place of temptation. We need to sometimes, for a season, remove ourselves from that place. And here's why I say for a season, because here's what God does, and this is the beauty of the gospel. Here's what God does. He will so often... Take that very thing that held us so bound up, feeling so hopeless. He will take us through a season of recovery, of killing those lifelines, of walking in wholeness and walking in freedom and healing those deep wounds of our heart in those environments and those places and those relationships. And here's what he does, because God is a redeemer. And so God takes what is almost exclusively the most horrendous part of us. And in a season and in a time, he heals us and he breaks down those bonds and he breaks down and he kills those chains and he frees us. And then what does he do? He takes us and he allows us with great empathy, with great love, to step into the lives of those still in those places and environments and toxic relationships. That's why I say for a season, for, for too long, the church has, has kind of tried to hide, right? I come to Jesus, and now I'm just going to gather with Christian people, and I'm going to just do the Christian thing, and I'm just going to go to church, and that's my complete social environment because I left that old world. But the Word says, no, 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 you didn't leave the world. You still live in this world, but you're not of this world. And so he's going to do something deep in you He'll do something deep in you 
But oftentimes, when we kill the lifelines of those environments and those places, he will lead us back to be those that extend the love of Jesus in those same places. For those that are wrapped up in that same hopelessness. And guess what? We get to do it with greater empathy. We get to do it with profound empathy because we were once lost in those areas of our lives. And he releases us to speak freedom and to bring freedom to the oppressed in those areas. But this is case by case. And it's important that you depend on the guidance of the Holy Spirit in these things. But it's also important that you depend on the counsel of community of faith. You know, Proverbs says, where there's a multitude of counselors, there's freedom. Where there's a multitude of counselors, there's safety. And so we depend on the Spirit and we ask the Spirit, when are you releasing me back into areas where I can throw lifelines of the gospel to those that are still bound up in those environments and those places, those lifelines and roots of sin and brokenness? For some of us, it's a season of a deep dive into understanding why a particular set of behaviors just keep on manifesting themselves in our lives. And again, this can't be accomplished by radical individualism. And here's what we do. We see and we know. We we know all too well the very things that are bringing us down in our walk and our faith. We know all too well those things that still bring shame to us despite being made new in Jesus. But here's what we do because we live in this, this society that is just so in love with the individual looking within and being strengthened from within and you have what it takes and you can be anything you want to be and we say these things and they're lies they're deceptions what happens is you will begin to try and walk this out on your own and you'll just keep hitting the ceiling of self and the spirit of truth leads us into community of faith where he says radical things. He says things like, confess your sins to one another. Wow. That's the opposite of individualism. That is a severe dependence on the work of Jesus. A severe dependence on one another for our spiritual growth as we grow and mature with one another. You must die so you can live. Now now notice the motivational language Paul uses to inspire the impetus of change here. He uses the wrath of God. He speaks of the wrath of God. Verse 6, on account of these things, what things? These roots, these these environments, these lifelines of sin in your life. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. But now... You must put them all away. He reminds the church that these patterns of the old person is the very sin nature that has spurred the coming wrath of God. The justice of God is coming. 
And he reminds the church, the justice and the wrath of God is coming. And you might say, I know, you know, I know. We, 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 we would rather hear of the God of grace and love and forgiveness. We'd rather talk about that God. But the reality is, God is justice. And God is mercy. God is wrath when it comes to holiness. Yet God is love. These, these things don't contradict one another. And this is why Jesus came. Because God's wrath is coming. And we're not talking about some obscure, arbitrary decision of God to come against certain behaviors and certain things. No, this is talking about a holy God, a perfect God. Where sin cannot be in his presence. So we can't be in his presence. Something had to happen to satisfy the justice of God, the wrath of God, when it came to our sin and our brokenness. And that something was he sent his beloved son, Jesus. That's why when we look at the story and the narrative of Jesus' death, it's so intense. You know, oftentimes we look at it and go, why, why was it so severe? Why was it so intense? The word says he died a more painful death than any other man. In the history of this humanity. Why? Because he chose to take on the wrath and the justice and the penalty of our sin upon himself as God. And he said, I know humanity cannot be in the presence of my Father unless I satisfy the justice and the wrath of my Father. To the point where on the cross, God actually turned his face away for the first time ever. The Trinity was broken. Think about that. For the first time ever, Jesus was expelled from the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because he satisfied the justice and wrath of God. He took our sins upon him. He died both figuratively and literally. He died spiritually in that moment. A profound moment where he turns to the Father and says, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, he's out of relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. Because he's satisfying the severe wrath of God. And it wasn't about God arbitrarily deciding. It's about God's nature. God is holy. That has never changed. That will always be. And so Jesus took on that wrath. The motivational language is our deep understanding of the wrath of God, the justice 
of God. You must die so you can live. Jesus modeled this for us. Paul goes on in verse 10. He says, And have put on the new self. And have put on the new self. You put off the old and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've, you've heard this, this saying that, that nature abhors a vacuum. Who's ever heard that saying? Nature abhors a vacuum. And the same is true here. If you're going to take off one nature, you have to put on another. Nature abhors a vacuum. For the Christian, there's this ongoing activity of putting on the new nature. And notice Paul, he's intentional about using a verb here. He says renewed. We are renewed. Here's our new reality Here's the way in which we're to live our lives. When you said yes to Jesus and the power of the gospel became, caused you to become new, there still remains a season of overlap between two kingdoms. The kingdom that was, the kingdom to come. That kingdom hasn't come yet. That kingdom will be established by Jesus Christ's return and his return only. And so we find ourselves in the overlap of two kingdoms. We find ourselves citizens of heaven and yet still living here in the kingdom of this world. When you said yes to Jesus, he did something profound in you. So this addiction, as it were, of the old kingdom mindset wants to hold on. And so we partner with the Spirit in Christian community. And we begin to go deep in the knowledge of our faith as we pursue the image of our Creator. And in time, we are renewed. We are deeply changed. And this is when our lives, our behaviors, our relationships, and our values begin to follow suit. It's the same way that we don't deal with the symptoms of sin. We also don't deal with the symptoms of holiness. We don't pursue holiness at any cost. The ends don't justify the means. We pursue holiness by pursuing the deep work of Jesus in us. We pursue holiness by pursuing the deep work of Jesus within us. Relationship, intimacy with Jesus changes us. And it's by his work alone. And now we we choose to pursue a lifetime of coming into alignment with that new reality. We, we choose a lifetime of coming into alignment with who we now are in Christ Jesus. That's why pursuing a life of, of, of this is looking less and less like us and more and more like him. Let, let me put it this way. As a young man, when I was single, I had a way of living life. And it was good. It was fun. I could do whatever I wanted anytime I wanted. I could be spontaneous. I could do all sorts of stuff. And I didn't have to ask anybody's permission to do it. And then I said, I do. <laughs> on my wedding day. And now it wasn't just me. I was now married. I now had someone else to think about. I now had someone else to sacrifice for. And so that relationship began to change my behavior. And it wasn't long after that, on June 5th, 2006, In a moment, I became a father. Everything changed again. 
I had to come alignment, into alignment with this new identity that I had been given as father. And here's, here's what happened. Both of those instances were moments. It took just a moment to say, I do, to change everything. It took just a moment for a doctor to say, congratulations, you guys are now parents of a baby girl. It took just a moment to change my identity as a father. But here's the reality. Just because you become a husband, just because you become a father, a mother, a wife, a grandparent, whatever the stage of life, it takes just a moment to get there, but then it takes a lifetime to come into alignment with that new responsibility and identity. It takes decisions every single day to begin to say no to self and yes to those that I love dearly and intimately. And that out of that relationship, it begins to change the way that I behave, the way that I acted, the priorities of my life, the values of my life. It began to change everything. This is the journey of faith. For many of you, it just took a moment. Because it's not about works, it's about the work of Jesus and our acceptance of that gift of salvation. It took a moment. And you were saved. You were made new in Christ Jesus. A moment. It changed your identity. It changed who you are. It changed your responsibility. It changed your value system. It changed the patterns of thinking and the way that you're to pursue and live out this life on this earth in this moment in this time of the in-between of two kingdoms. And so now we give ourselves to this journey of looking more and more like Jesus every day. Now here's where Paul lands um, before he gets into, and we're going to talk next week about what we put on and what putting on, what that looks like. And Paul gives us a descriptor of what that looks like. But before he goes there, Paul lands kind of right here in this area of faith community. This faith community that we've been called to walk this out. Because we, we need to remember both from, from the truths of God's word and the, and the power of the Spirit and his partnership with one another that's going to see you fulfill this journey of coming into alignment with these new patterns and these new ways of living as a result of being made new in Jesus. And I'm not talking about salvation here. So before you get too far ahead of you, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. That's that moment that we talked about. Receiving that gift of salvation, it's in Christ alone. Nothing beyond that can earn our salvation. Nothing beyond what we're talking about now can give you salvation. What we're talking about now is coming into alignment with this new reality. The journey of looking more and more like Jesus every day. Colossians 3.11 says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul points out the fact that in Jesus, the playing field has been completely leveled. And I would argue in the first century, they probably had some extras when it came to uh, hierarchies in society and culture. Because they literally had, they had slaves and they had free. They had barbarians and pagans and, and Scythians and they had these extremes. 
within their culture. And here's what Paul's saying to that first century church. And this is what Paul is saying to us here in Powell River. You are all now the same. You are all now sons and daughters of God. And there's no hierarchy. There's no cultural hierarchy in my kingdom. Jesus is the head and we are the body. And that's it. And Jesus profoundly shifts the playing field of the patterns and the ways of this world. Because how many know the patterns and the ways of this world speak to hierarchy? They speak to tribalism. They speak to associating with your tribe. Um, you know, there's even some extremes that we're seeing just this deeply divided society in our own society. We're living in this time of deep tribalism. And, and, it's, it's, and it's a rise at a rampant rate. And, and here's what's happening. Because we have this value of hyper-individualism, we have more and more tribes. You know, it used to be that tribes, when we talked about the language of tribes, it was, it was perhaps ethnic groups or, or countries. Or, but in today's society, as we become more and more hyper-individualized, we have more and more subsets of tribes in our culture. And here's what happens. We get involved in these smaller and smaller and smaller tribes. And if you associate with someone from a tribe other than your own, you get ousted. Just look at Hollywood. Just look at Hollywood right now. There are Hollywood actors that are terrified of getting in the same frame of a picture with someone that maybe is outside of the tribe. Socially or politically or in their ideology. We have people losing their jobs because they're associating with a particular tribe. Here's the beauty of Jesus. He levels the playing field. Let, let, let me give you an example. The other day, a few days ago, I, I, I liked a video on Facebook. And I'm very, very careful what I do on social media. Very, very careful. Um, I feel like I have a responsibility to be very careful. But... There's a particular video I saw it, and I had watched it, and I liked it, and I commented on it. You know what the initial thought that came to me? Here's my initial thought. I just liked and commented a video of a Bible teacher that was, that was delving into a particular subset of topic, okay? Here's, here's my thought. People are going to see that. They're going to take the whole of this individual's work. And then you're going to say, Lucas is part of that tribe. I just, I just quoted N.T. Wright this morning. N.T. Wright is a retired Anglican priest. He's a Bible, he's a scholar, he studies scripture, he's a, he's a Pauline literature expert. I, I quoted N.T. Wright this morning. You know, and here's what happens. Even in the church, Tribalism is alive and well in the church, by the way. People are going to look at that quote and go, okay. I, I remember I, I quoted a Rick Warren quote one time, and I had people, they were rip-roaring mad at me. Oh, man, they were mad at me. Because they took the whole 
the whole, the whole, and said, you must be part of that tribe. No, 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 no. Here's the beauty of Jesus. He leveled the playing field. He leveled the playing field. He took us out of tribalism. And he brought us into unity. One body. One mission. One Lord and Savior. One spirit of truth. He leveled the playing field. I'm going to ask the worship team to come at this time. And we're going to celebrate just that. We're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus' work in us has done something profound in us. He's changed us. He's given us new life. He's given us new life. And so, Lord, as we come to this table today, would you do something in us? Would you remind us, Lord, as we, as we take these symbols of a deeper work, as we're reminded of the waters of baptism, symbols of a deeper work, that we are indeed dead. Lucas Richard Mitchell is dead. But you have brought me alive in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're dying to live. We're dying to live. Would you cause us, Lord, to be profoundly changed? Would you cause us, Lord, to be empowered to align our hearts around this new reality of who we are in Christ Jesus? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As those distributing communion could come and